flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Hi all, and welcome back to the Flatlands. I'm one of your hosts, Tana Fancher, our three coordinator for the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. And I'm Laura Mendenhall, president of the Kansas Wildlife Federation. We are so excited to have you join us to chat about the North American model of wildlife conservation. And who better to discuss this topic with than Brad Loveless, secretary of the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism, and Steve Bender, Director of Conservation Partnerships at the National Wildlife Federation. Well, welcome to you both, and thanks for agreeing to be a part of the conversation today. So, um, Brad, from what I know about you, I know you are a lifelong outdoor enthusiast, and Laura and I have even had the pleasure of meeting a few of your furry outdoor adventure companions in the past. (laughs) I'm just curious if you could give us like a 20-second elevator pitch about you, some of your interests in the outdoors, and maybe even the pathway that brought you to your current career at KDWPT. Yeah, thank you, Tana. I surely enjoyed getting out and chasing some Kansas birds with you all last season. I hope we can do that again, and I promise my dogs will work better next year. So <laughs> I'd look look I look forward to that. Um, so my background, since I was a kid, um, I have really enjoyed just getting out and wandering around. I got myself in trouble plenty of times when I was young by taking off and not letting anybody know. But I was always interested in in uh, hiking and uh, turning over rocks and logs and uh, trying to catch things. I always uh, was really fascinated by ecological relationships, by the things that put biological communities together and, and uh, the, the integrity that, that good ecological communities have, the resilience that they have, that has fascinated me. So I went to um, Ohio State University, got a degree in zoology, came out to Kansas, got a master's degree in fisheries at the University of Kansas. From there, I went to work for Wolf Creek. I was over their their fishery program and expanded to be over their environmental program and then moved up to corporate headquarters, uh, Westar Energy then, now Evergy in Topeka and managed initially their uh, uh, ecological uh, kind of stewardship program. We did projects all over the state um, and that's really where I first met folks from wildlife parks and tourism um, got to do projects, you know, dozens of projects with them over the years and got to gain an appreciation for this agency and, uh, and what the, the great work they do, the really important work that they do. And so uh, two years ago, I got the opportunity to uh, work with uh, you know, Laura Kelly's administration and, and lead this agency. I was really honored 
by that opportunity. And uh, it has really been fun, a great learning experience, and just exhilarating to see what all um, this terrific staff we have uh, in Kansas does. And uh, so it's, it's, it's been a wonderful ride, and I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. Well, good. And we're certainly fortunate and grateful to be functioning under your leadership and expertise. Um, we're very happy to have you, Brad. Thank you. And Brad, Brad, what's your favorite thing to hunt? Golly, um, my wife would pick ducks because she loves to eat ducks. Um, I honestly um, probably like Upland the best simply because of the dogs. You know, you got to meet my dogs when we went hunting. I love them. They are a really important part of my enjoyment of the hunt. So much so that if they're working, it's good habitat and they're working and uh, I'm, I'm happy. And if we get some birds uh, to, to shoot at, that's great. But when the dogs are working in good habitat, I'm, I'm in hog heaven. Cool. I feel you there. Great, and Steve, so we've had the pleasure of teaming up with you for a lot of different efforts between NWF, KWF, and KDWPT, uh, and we've gotten out in the field a few times together as well. Will you give our audience the 20-second, uh, 30-second elevator pitch of who you are? I appreciate that, Laura. Thank you, and Tana, thank you for letting me be on the show. I appreciate that. I'm excited to be here with Brad, so glad he's here and we get to share this first opportunity together. Um, you know, I've been a Texan for a little over 25 years now, and I never really thought I'd be a Texan, uh, but here I am. Uh, I've been living in Austin, Texas for 25 years, but before that, I grew up in East Central Kansas in Emporia and uh, went to school there in Emporia, at Emporia State, got my undergraduate degree. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time like Brad did, turned over rocks. I was really fascinated by uh, the, the, the transition of a tadpole to a frog, and I I'd love to go find, you know, when the when the ponds were down, going to dig out crawdads and and pond fishing was one of my favorite things. And I I, I grew up, uh, and I actually spent a little time hunting, but only as uh, my my granddad didn't have a bird dog, so I acted as the bird dog. I had a a great uh, slingshot that that I would shoot uh, rocks into brush piles so that the birds would flush out and he could shoot them. So I I was I was more the bird dog before I was the bird hunter. Uh, so that that was kind of my early upbringing. I went to Emporia State, got a degree in biology, secondary education. And so, of course, I went on to be a teacher, moved down to Texas to be a teacher. And then after about three years of that, I wanted to do something different. And so I went and got my master's degree in biology with a focus on wildlife management from Texas, what is now Texas State University. At the time, it was Southwest Texas State University. I uh, got a job as a private biologist at a private firm for a series of years ended up owning and operating that firm uh, and, and then went on to uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. So I worked for the state for about four years. I actually was uh, a, a planner at the, uh, in the wildlife division at the at Texas Parks and Wildlife. I, I wrote the non-game management plan for the state of Texas for the state wildlife grant program and did that and had a lot of good years there. And then I uh, got the opportunity to come to the National Wildlife Federation in 2008. I've been here ever since. I've been here, I'm in my 14th year now. I work with our affiliates. We have 53 wonderful affiliates, Kansas Wildlife Federation being one of those affiliates. And I get the opportunity to work with several of those affiliates to um, hopefully make them better or create great relationships between NWF and, and the, the affiliates so that we can do great things together in conservation. So really had a great time uh, at NWF. And like I said, been here you know, over 13 years now. Wow. 
Cool. And I think you're you're uniquely qualified to have this discussion today because you have private, state, and nonprofit experience. You're only missing the, yeah. the Fed, federal yeah, government. Yeah, no, and I, and I have to think about that career-wise, don't I? Because I, I could get, you know, I could just capture everything if I just get one more shot at the Fed. So uh, I'm, I'm putting my name in now, Laura, so help me out when you get a chance. <laughs> okay, will do. You know, it's funny talking to folks um, in the wildlife conservation field. It seems like that turning over rocks and exploration aspect um, seems to be a really common thread with everybody. And Steve, you know, I'm curious, what was your your biggest find while turning over rocks? What was the one thing that was like, oh, that's such a bonus. I'm so glad I found that. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, at Emporia State University, there's a little pond. It's a ridiculous little pond in the middle of campus. It's a nice little pond. It's called Wooster Lake, I believe. And my buddies and I went in there one day and they had, they had emptied it out for whatever reason. I, I, I didn't know I was young and didn't know why, but here's an empty pond that had all sorts of critters in it and you never get to see that. And so I, I jumped into the mud and ended up losing a shoe that day because of the, the suction, but I jumped into the pond and started digging out crawdads, just giant crawdads that of course nobody cared about because it was in the middle of a campus. So it wasn't so much a find as being able to explore something that was totally different, you know, two days before something that nobody ever, you know, you really don't think about digging into a pond that's empty. You think about fishing a pond that's full. So that was, that was an ex- exceptional opportunity for me to kind of get really dirty, get really muddy. And like I said, even lose a shoe, but it was, it was transformative for me in a way. I love the way you said that. You don't think about digging into a pond that's empty. You think about fishing a pond that's full. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, it was a fun. It was a fun experience, and like I said, I nearly didn't come out of there, but it was worth every every minute. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, so our goal today for this episode, and having you both on, is to talk about the North American model for wildlife conservation, and we wanted to chat a little bit about this topic because it can be perceived as dry, but really it lays such an incredible foundation for everything else that we'll continue to do on this podcast, and um, also everything we do within our jobs. So. We really just wanted to introduce that today, and we even have some bragging rights because the North American model for wildlife conservation is really touted as the world's most successful system of policies and laws to restore and safeguard fish and wildlife and their habitats. Um, So we've got a little bit of bragging rights here, but it's something we can definitely discuss and use to lay a foundation for future conversations. Right. And I think our goal with today's episode and with future episodes is to give our listeners the framework and also just a common language that they can use to discuss pertinent wildlife management issues over a beverage perhaps or at your next family gathering when your cousin says something that's totally erroneous about wildlife, you, our listener, will be able to uh, make things right. So yeah, Tana, you said it best. Today's episode will provide that framework to underpin wildlife management in Kansas and also will underpin every other episode that we do in this series. Right. And the North American model, um, just diving right in, it really has laid a historic foundation, but it is, um, as anything historic, you know, it may require some new eyes and um, some revisiting. So we're going to dig into that a little bit today. Um, So the North American model is made up of seven major pillars, and the first of these is that wildlife is a public resource. So, Brad, Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism is obviously tasked with the important responsibility of managing our fish and wildlife habitats and populations. So I'm really curious if, like, in the scope of the work we do, what does wildlife as a public resource really mean? 
Well, um, good question. Fascinating uh, evolution of this North American model over time. I got a chance in preparation for today to do a little bit of reading, and uh, it really gets to something that legal folks call the public trust doctrine. And just real simply, it's uh, the idea that the state has a responsibility to manage the natural resources on behalf of all citizens, both for now and in the future. So that means we have to do it in a sustainable way. And it means that the laws apply uh, uh, for those resources on both public and private lands. It's really been interesting for me to see the evolution of the North American model. I went back and was reading back in the in the 1800s when it started on the East Coast with with lands that had been ceded from the king and and they were trying to apply the model that they had in Europe and uh, and and the people in in the United States said we don't want that we want to change that so it was really neat to see uh, the evolution of that um, and uh, changing away from from that, that European model to what we have here today and it's and it has been very successful uh, it's, it has been dynamic, and I, I'd love to dig in with you if we have time later on in the, in the program to talk about some needed changes because it has been very successful, but like, like everything, needs to be flexible enough to address issues that are, uh, we're facing today that maybe they didn't consider a couple hundred years ago. So uh, very important, but basically the, the public trusts us to take care of these resources for the public's benefit. Right. And that was the way it was explained to me in college as well as like it's not the king's deer. And that's so relevant in a state like Kansas, because while we are blessed to have a lot of programs that open access to huntable land, um, we are realistically a 98 percent privately owned um, land state. So it's really important that that wildlife isn't considered part of that private property. That wildlife is a public resource that we can all use and benefit from. Amen. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Tana. And just just the image of, okay, you've got a private landowner, you've got private land fenced off. And if a deer jumps into that land, it's still, it's still owned by the public. So it's, it's technically it's owned by everyone, but also kind of no one because it's owned by everyone, which is cool. Exactly. And Brad, you brought up an interesting point too, of that um, we're really tasked with managing these wildlife and um, wild areas for the benefit of all people. And one of the interesting criticisms of the North American model, the way that it was written, is that it may come from um, just a hunting perspective. And traditionally, as per the time, it comes from a male perspective as well. So one of the criticisms that we might get into a little bit more later is, does this model, is this model really written to reflect the needs and desires of the whole public that we're serving? Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. And if I was just having that conversation already, I've had that twice today, once in a committee meeting over in the legislature and once on a board call I was just on, we have got to figure out ways to broaden our audience, right? We are um, foolish if we think we can, we can uh, go back to just that traditional narrow audience we have, which has been great, which we want to carry along, but we have to broaden it uh, to expand all those who feel like this is theirs and it belongs to them and they can use it and enjoy it. Uh, that's the path to sustainability that we're on. Absolutely. I'm glad we're headed that direction too. And obviously wildlife and parks can play an important role in that with some of our um, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts that we're hoping to get off the ground and continue 
I know we've had the opportunity to partner with the Wildlife Federation, both the Kansas Wildlife Federation and the folks at National Wildlife Federation, particularly Steve and Laura. So it's really exciting that we're headed down that path and um, acknowledging some of those challenges and some of those criticisms. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, just I want to quit talking, but I have to interject one thing. I was so enthused. I, I've been involved with National Wildlife Federation in my career and know what a great organization they are, but I had no idea about their enthusiasm for uh, broadening uh, the, the base of people that participate in the outdoors because they jumped on with both feet. If, if you remember when we had this first conversation about Spanish translation of our, our fishing regs, Holy cow, they, they came out guns blazing. And I was so impressed at their their just unbridled enthusiasm for making sure that everybody felt included, that that was just thrilling for me. Yeah, that was a project we're really proud to have worked with you on. And, and now we have the Spanish translated hunting regulations. And I think, Tana, the fishing regulations are available now too, right? Or they will be? They will be coming out soon. We're excited to be taking them to our focus group soon to make sure we're getting feedback um, from those folks that will be using them most and uh, then they'll come out for publication. So we're really excited to release those this spring. Cool. So I wonder if it's worth it to talk about, you know, this is the North American model, which includes Canada and the United States. Um, and with that public trust doctrine, is there a model now or, you know, 100 years ago that that is a nice contrast to the current model. Cause when I think, so I watched the crown on Netflix as I'm sure many of our listeners probably do. And there are all these scenes of the queen hunting on all these acres of land. And it seems like a really arist aristocratic pastime. Um, and Steve, maybe you can speak to a comparison of a different model. Yeah, I, I can. And, and I, I just want to acknowledge really quickly that what I'm about to talk about is I, I've dipped my toe into this subject matter. So I, I do not want to come off or try to try to put myself out there as an expert in, in the ways of African wildlife management. But I was able to last year, in fact, it was the last plane trip I took before um, the pandemic kind of squeezed us out of that space. I took a trip over to Africa to visit some good friends of mine who were working at uh, one who's an outdoor writer by the name of Shane Townsend. And he is, he's an incredible outdoor writer, but he, he's working for the Department of Ag and Foreign Service and was stationed with his family over in Kenya. And he invited me over to go fish for marlin and, and, uh, and billfish. And we caught you know, tuna and all that. And so he invited me to go. And of course, I wasn't prepared to not do that. I, I jumped on a plane and, and took off. And before I left, he said, hey, you know, why don't you come over and talk to some folks about the North American model of wildlife management? Because the way Kenyans do it is completely different. So I was flying into Nairobi. And so he invited me to work with the embassy to do some talks on North American model. And the difference is that the, the, the Kenyans outlawed hunting in the 1970s. So there's been no hunting in two generations within Kenya. So uh, most of the folks I had talked to were born after hunting was uh, a legal thing to do. And so while, they, while the intent was to really kind of make sure that they protected the wildlife, what's happened over the years is a lot of poaching and a lot of, and, and, and a lot of work to protect those species with game wardens and and people to monitor the the different herds of animals and to try to protect them but 
they're still in decline as a result. And I was able to meet with the Kenyan Wildlife Services, some Kenyan Wildlife Services staff and some nonprofits while I was there. And the Kenyan Wildlife Services have been tasked by the government. Uh, and essentially the Kenyan Wildlife Services is our US Fish and Wildlife Service. So the, the Kenyan government, uh, the Kenyan Wildlife Service has been tasked to make themselves, uh, to pay their own way, so to speak, uh, moving forward within, I think it was five years. So they're now probably on a four year track. So they have to have, find a way to pay for their own work. And of course, North American model, where we, we function in a user pay system where hunters and anglers pay to get licenses and those monies go into the management of wildlife. And so it was a completely different space to be in. I was talking to folks who, who didn't, uh, hadn't, like I said, been a part of a hunting culture uh, in, in two generations. And they were very nice to me. They were wonderful to me. They asked incredible questions. And it was a really great experience to be able to do that. And so, but it was the opposite of where we are now. I guess you could say the opposite would be, as, as you said, Laura, uh, the queen's deer or the, the king's deer. But this was a completely different model where hunting was taken out of the equation and the user pay system was out of the equation. So yeah, there's some different models throughout the, the world and, and that's just one. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that description. And I guess we would encourage our listeners to check out different countries and what their models are to kind of compare contrast to what we have here. Absolutely. And that's so fascinating. Sorry, Steve, do, uh, did you notice of those folks that had been, um, that were present in the area before hunting was outlawed, was there a sense of loss with those people? Did you have the opportunity to speak to that at all? The majority of the folks I talked to were, so one group was a group of, of college students. It's essentially, it was like a junior college for us, but they were all working in wildlife management uh, in some form or fashion. And so you're talking, you know, 18 to 20 somethings. So none of them had had that experience. The people I spoke to at the embassy, um, again, were different ages, but I don't look, you know, kind of in my memory, looking out over the audience, not many of them would have had that connection. Uh, you know, and so no, it was most of my discussion was them listening to me talk about the North American model and and talking a lot about the seven pillars, you know, but also talking about hunting. And I made sure that they knew that I was a hunter, and they made sure that I, they knew that I was going to talk about these things because I didn't want to upset them because again, they hadn't experienced it for a good long time. That's interesting. So. Um, Tan, I can't remember if you mentioned at the beginning that there are seven pillars of this model. So we just covered the first pillar, which is wildlife as a public resource. Well, the second one uh, I find to be really fascinating, and hopefully you will too, but it's markets for game are eliminated. And so, Steve, I was hoping we could talk through this one, and I think that this pillar lends itself really nicely to some Google image searches for our listeners. So if you just type in um, bison pelts, Dodge City, you should come up with some photos of a pile of literally 40,000 bison pelts in Dodge City. I think this was in the late 1800s. Um, you can also find photos of train cars full of prairie chickens that would come from Kansas. People would go out and shoot prairie chickens by the thousands and put them on these refrigerated train cars and then ship them to Kansas City and Chicago to restaurants, what else? Waterfowl, people would shoot them by the thousands with these crazy guns called punt guns. Have you guys ever seen a, a video of a punt gun? I have never even heard of a punt gun. 
You know, when you read about market hunting on the East Coast, Chesapeake Bay and all that, it, it is amazing what they did trapping of waterfowl, baiting and trapping, but those crazy punt guns that just blasted rocks and everything they could find out, it, it is pretty amazing. Yeah, there are these massive guns that would be mounted on boats and they would just take out hundreds of, of um, ducks and geese at a time. Like totally unimaginable in this day and age. So the origin really quickly of the punt gun and the, the punt is actually the skiff that they were mounted on, right? So they were mounted on skiffs because they were so large, like Laura said, they were 10, 11 feet long and couldn't be handled by a hunter like we handle a 12 gauge now. They had to be mounted in order to do that. And you could silently, these were unmotorized boats. You could silently come to, into a cove with eight or 10 of these punt guns mounted on these, these skiffs and take out 500 ducks at once. It with, you know, if everybody shot at once or however it worked, they could, they could easily take out 500 ducks at one time. So it was, it was a killing machine is what it was. Wow. And it, it's so easy to look back on that and think about that as being such a horrendous thing. But really, for a long time, um, the resources in North America were thought to be so abundant, um, it wasn't really realized the impact that we were having by uh, taking part in some of these activities. So looking back, it's like, wow, I can't believe that happened. But realistically, these resources seemed abundant and a market was found and it was taken advantage of. And unfortunately, to um, to such a degree that wildlife really um, you know, was hurt by that. Yeah. That's a good point. One of the things that I remember reading is in the early days of our of um, our country, there were people that came from Europe that had had seen what had happened over time over there and and were wise enough to point out to our leaders like uh, Teddy Roosevelt and a lot of the outdoor writers that, hey, we used to have abundant wildlife over here. That's changed. And and we benefited from the mistakes they made over there. So hopefully we weren't going to repeat them. And we, you know, we started obviously, as you mentioned with Buffalo and, and uh, deer and turkeys, all the things, passenger pigeons, things that were either knocked way, way back uh, or actually pushed to extinction and uh, realized from that, that, okay, we've got to do things differently. So that was a real benefit that we gained. Yeah, definitely. And I think understanding these markets in the 1800s and early 1900s helps me anyway contextualize some some of those old-timey historical photos that you see. Like, for example, I found it really interesting that the beaver trade, you know, you always hear about all these beaver pelts going over to Europe to make hats. And I was picturing like a, a big fur beaver hat, you know, like a frontiersman would wear. But actually... Anytime you see a, a guy or a man in the 1800s wearing like a top hat, like a black top hat, that was felted beaver fur from North America. That just blew my mind. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then, of course, ladies hats with all the feathers, you know, those came from egrets in North America. They would go into the um, nesting colonies and just take out egrets by the tens, hundreds to get those feathers. Yeah. Right. So, so it really, yeah, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, ultimately, the millinery trade, the hat making trade, where the plumes, the plume hunting, and, and by the way, let's just call it harvesting because we talk about plume hunting, we talk about bison hunting, and we talk about, you know, duck hunting. None of that was hunting. It was, it was, was basically like going into a wheat field and cutting wheat. It was, it was harvesting. But 
in Florida, we got down to where about 95%, my understanding was about 95% of all the shorebirds that had those plumes were eliminated from Florida. So if you can imagine, now we see them pretty readily, but they were got down to about 95%. So that's, or got down by 95%. So that's, that's this huge, significant number uh, to, to even recover from. So it, it underscores the value of, of listening to our citizens and our biologists out there when they, you know, make a, a warning call to us that we need to stop, we need to recognize what we're doing, quantify it, and and consider a change in direction. Because I, I remember, right, that was, as I recall, the first property that we ever set aside for protection was one of those islands that that the uh, those those birds depended on and had been decimated, you know, by that that market hunting. And so we learned our lesson, thankfully, just in the nick of time in that case. And by it's the way, it's interesting to me that they're. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Steve. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Tana. By the way, I just got back from Sanibel Island, which is where the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge is, which is you know Ding Darling uh, was one of the fathers of the National Wildlife Federation, one of the founders of the National Wildlife Federation. Any, but anytime you get a chance to go down to Sanibel, please do and, and enjoy that refuge because it's amazing shorebirds. Sounds much better than being trapped in an ice storm. <laughs> I was just going to say that. It's so cold here. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm really curious. It seems that there are some areas or markets that have not been eliminated through this. Like, for example, fur bearers. Um, can you both maybe talk to that a little bit and what exceptions there might be, like in the herp trade or, like I said, with fur bearers, um, what exceptions exist? And then how how is that regulated? What really makes that an exception? How does that change? Okay, go ahead, Steve. That's a good question. <laughs> I, I don't deal, you know, I, I, I have pretty decent historic knowledge of the trade, of the, the market hunting, but I don't have as much knowledge about the herp trade. When I was at Parks and Wildlife, we did deal with that. Uh, through the non-game program and we had folks uh, working through those efforts but i i didn't know a lot about it so i in, think uh, i'm sorry go ahead I brian pass the buck so yeah, hard on I, that I, I, funny. Right. <laughs> I, I can add a little bit of uh, just a little bit um in kansas when it comes to um herbs uh, we uh, don't allow wild caught herbs that are native to the state to be sold or, or traded. Um, the only thing that can be um, bartered with or sold is um, those that have been uh, bred in captivity, right? That's that's a difference in Kansas. So the wild caught stuff can't be, and we have trouble with it, right? We spend a lot of time watching uh, and uh, catching people who are doing that very thing, catching things as simple as box turtles that we've all caught. Uh, people are selling those and they're, and, and so uh, we work hard to, to discourage that. Um, when it comes to furs, and of course, the, the meat from those animals can't be um, sold, just like the meat from ducks and, you know, and deer and everything else can't be sold, but it is parts. And, and we also allowed to sell parts, you know, feathers of some birds, um, but uh, definitely it's, it's the fur part that, that can be sold, and that's been a Long-standing tradition, you know, the, the the this continent was really founded, and and a lot of the, the the exploration was driven by fur traders because that was so lucrative, and so that that goes back a long, long ways, and I don't know 
what it would take uh, to change that. Certainly there have been people that have said they don't want to buy furs. They want to discourage harvest of animals for their furs. But uh, that, that has been a longstanding tradition in North America. Yeah, and I think, Brad, that's a good point. And I think that's why it's sort of an exception to this this markets for game rule because it has been going on for so long and it's been going on sustainably. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also it, it tends to, in areas, meet a need. Like, for example, um, in an urban area, if there's an overpopulation of raccoons or if a beaver is impounding a, wa- a waterway, you know, there's there's sort of a, a double need there. So I think that from my reading, that's why um, the fur-bearing market is still acceptable in some circles. And it's highly yep. regulated as well, right? I mean, this isn't something that's just yeah. loosey-goosey. Um, there's a lot of regulations in place and a lot of best practices in place as well for like the types of traps that can be set and, um, you know, reasonable experience of the animal that might be being trapped, uh, making sure that that animal doesn't suffer. So it really is highly managed. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Tana. Um, I know uh, our Matt Peak, our biologist that manages fur bears, um, he probably has a better handle on trappers. You know, we don't have huge numbers in Kansas, but still in terms of understanding what they're doing, they, they keep excellent records. Um, they are um, ethical folks and all the points you mentioned about humanely capturing and dispatching those animals uh, is, is important. And, and that industry has evolved with, um, with you know, public uh, sentiments changing over time, uh, but still it's viable. We have a lot of Kansans that, that still do that. Really, it's an important part of their, their uh, both recreation and livelihood. And so uh, I think that is a program area to your point Tana, that we spend a lot of time, has a lot of oversight, and we have a pretty good understanding of what's going on. Absolutely. Well, that really kind of leads us into the next, um, the third sister, if you will, the next pillar, and that is that the allocation of wildlife is by law. So we talk about um, how regulated and how managed these systems are. This third sister really is the tenant that supports providing legal access to hunting through bag limits, licenses, etc., um, so one of the things I want to talk about today is maybe how some of these decisions are made about licenses, permits, and bag limits. Um, how is that determined? Who is it determined by? I'd really like to hear more about that. Okay, I can, I can start to respond. Uh, as far as the state process in Kansas, it, our laws are based on kind of a mixture of legislation that comes from our, our uh, folks at the Capitol, uh, our elected representatives, and then also the, the uh, regulations that are passed by the Kansas Wildlife Parks and Tourism Commission. It's a seven-member body appointed by governors, nonpartisan, and uh, when it comes to our regulations, uh, the process starts with good science that our staff uses to make recommendations about what regulations should be, and then um, we go through a, a minimum of a three-step public meeting process. We have commission meetings throughout the year and at least three times it's brought up, it's on the agenda, published ahead of time, discussed where the public has a chance for input. And then after that, at least three 
occasions, then we can vote on that. And that's a, a really high standard. And, and that's one we're very proud of. We think we bend over backwards to include the public in decision making in Kansas. Oftentimes, it takes a lot more. Um, and we just, there's, there's a lot of public thought and input that's requested. And so we extend that out over five, six, seven meetings uh, that I've seen uh, before we finally ask the commission or the commission feels like they're ready to make a vote. So, so scientific data, uh, sociological uh, information, human dimensions information from the public, and then tradition kind of all mix in to make our regulations. Wow, and I would really encourage the public, too, if you haven't had the opportunity to come to a Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism Commission meeting, I would certainly encourage you to come. And if not, um, our staff has worked extremely hard to make those available, especially during times of COVID, online virtually. If you're interested in checking out any of the recordings on that, they can be found on our YouTube channel at the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism um, as well as on our website. So you can go back and maybe do a little bit of research if a topic came up that you're interested in learning more about or um, attend and provide some input or feedback. That's always welcome. And, um, you know, like Brad said in the beginning, we are tasked with managing our wildlife and uh, wildlife resources for the public. And so we want to hear from the public and make sure that their voices are taken into consideration. Yeah, yeah good point, yeah. Tana. And, oh. Go ahead, yeah, Brad. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, Tana described it perfectly. One of the neat things that's come out of COVID is, of course, we went to virtual Zoom meetings, and we saw our participation by the public really expand. Historically, we try to move our meetings around the state to cover all the corners, but people just are limited by travel, even even without COVID. So I will be surprised if we ever go back to uh, a just in-person-only meeting. I think this a hybrid model where we have in-person options, you know, as well as Zoom options, once we get past COVID, will be the way we do things in the future because uh, we've had so much more participation, and that's what we really, really crave because uh, uh, we make better decisions when we get more public input. So, so we've learned a lot from from this, and and we do really encourage the public to to participate. But yeah, that's really good to hear. And we are going to have an episode on this podcast all about game commission meetings and how to attend and how to engage, because that's a goal of ours, too, is to get more public involvement in these. Great. So in terms of um, wildlife laws, I think an important one is the Lacey Act, and that is really the one that when it was passed in 1900, that eliminated the markets for game. And I bring that up now because it was just in the news. So I don't know if you guys saw in the papers this past week in Kansas, but there was a huge poaching case that just closed. And a lot of the violations were Lacey Act violations, which I thought was interesting. It's a federal law. Um, and most people associate it with, with trade, like the illegal trade of wildlife, but it also can be used for the illegal take of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're right. That is always cited because invariably a big uh, part of the the problem is that they're taking uh, critters from one state moving them to another to me it's analogous to the laws around uh, tax evasion that they caught so many gangsters because they were they, they were not obviously being forthright with the money they were they were earning and and they followed the money and they'd catch those folks and get them for not paying taxes on it lazy I mean the, the, the last thing that those folks typically worry about is 
taken that poached, you know, deer from Kansas, you know, down to Texas or to California or wherever they came from. But uh, that that is a really valuable uh, law that helps us catch and prosecute those folks very effectively. So it's a it's a cornerstone of our ability to prosecute criminals. Yeah, and we're we're also going to have a whole episode on the Lacey Act too. So. We'll get into that one more in depth in the future. Oh, spoiler alert there. Tune in, tune in. <laughs> Join us in the flatlands. <laughs> so I'm trying to think of more um, federal laws. We've got Endangered Species Act, Migratory Bird Treaty Act. I mean, there are so many, and they kind of work together with some of these state laws that, that you, Brad, have been talking about. Yeah, yeah, they're important. I mean, you mentioned the North American model, the North American Migratory Bird Treaty Act, MBTA, is really important. I've dealt with that for a lot of years. And it really, when you have critters that are moving across state and even national boundaries, you just have to have um, cooperation from all those different countries uh, to, to effectively manage uh, those critters. And so Migratory Bird Treaty Act has been terrific. We spend a lot of time. Kansas has a voice in in those laws uh, regarding those migratory birds, as do all our other neighboring states and and uh, Canada and Mexico. So those are really effective. We make much better decisions when we work together, and also it enables us to you know put some peer pressure on folks if we feel like they aren't living up to the, the protective standards that we've all agreed on. Earlier, you mentioned about about a tra trade of, of reptiles and amphibians. Um, the, uh, there's, there's an act called CITES is the abbreviation, but it's Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. And that is one we as states work hard on to cooperate to, to cut down on that, the movement of those animals uh, because they can be decimated. And particularly if their value goes up. And so, so cooperation is needed. And so those laws that you just referenced are really critical for us um, managing uh, those resources properly and, and being able to chase bad folks who are trying to violate them. And really, at the end of the day, um, kind of jumping around a little bit, but wildlife is considered an international resource. And so you know, it's really relevant with birds. Um, they don't necessarily respect borders or state lines or countries. And so, you know, that's a really important factor of this. And it's actually the fifth sister. As I said, we're we're jumping around between pillars here. But um, it's something to keep in mind because it, you can't just manage locally. This really has to be a cooperative effort. And that's part of what's made this model so successful. Yep, exactly right. And one of the things we can look at with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in particular, if you, if you want to see a rubber hitting the road kind of use of that act, the reason that the, the settlement on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill was so excessive, and so you know, it was $100 billion plus dollars in fines, a lot of that was tied, my understanding is a lot of that was tied, I don't know exactly the numbers, but a lot of it was tied to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and all of them, it was about there's estimated been about a million birds taken in that oil spill and we call it tape uh, and we can talk more about that in a second but about a million birds died as a result of that accident and all of that was taken into consideration when uh, the federal government uh, went after british petroleum and, and the others involved in that so 
that's a that that and that wasn't that long ago. Now we use those monies to actually do more management on the ground. So that, that those billions of dollars are now in play to do management in the Gulf of Mexico. And so the money is just not absorbed in this case, was just not absorbed into some black hole, federal black hole. It was put, it's being put to use as we speak. So it was a, it was a devastating oil spill and the result was ultimately a good thing. I don't think anybody would say that we should have gone through that uh, horrible oil spill to get that money, but now we have that money and we can put it to good use. Yeah, I like that silver lining there. If you're in biology, yeah, if you're if you're a wildlife manager, you, manager, you have to look for the silver lining, Tanny. You know that. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, and I guess so, Tana. Earlier, you'd mentioned how one of the criticisms of this model is that it focuses primarily on hunting and on game. But another example of of international cooperation with with a migratory animal would be around the monarch butterfly, which is a, a, a species that crosses Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And so there's some cooperation there with with helping that species, which is imperiled, as we know. Um, in addition to, of course, Canada geese and um, all kinds of different ducks, waterfowl, caribou, mule deer. There are lots of things that are transnational migrants in North America. Yeah, to me, that's that's a really good example. And to Steve's point about looking for silver linings, what one of the things that is not uncommon to find is when uh, a species like monarch ends up having a critical part of its life cycle occur in an area where maybe it's it's not really valued or not uh, I, I shouldn't put it that way i guess i would say is is uh, not as prominent as as what it is in another country so in that case when they they overwinter down in mexico in areas that that you know could be being logged for relatively small value it enables a partnering country like the united states to say you're you're making X amount of money in that area uh, by logging those trees that these monarchs absolutely depend on, our monarchs collectively depend on, uh, how can we help um, reduce uh, the incentive for taking those trees? How can we protect those areas? And and because uh, we've got money and interest, how can we, we work together to protect the species? So those are important conversations and getting back to that, that kind of uh, broader accountability for our actions hopefully those international treaties foster that. So really quickly on the monarchs, and this is for your listeners to look up, in order to kind of have a really good look at monarchs and their wintering grounds in the mountains of Mexico, they are using hummingbird drones. So get on Google, look up hummingbird drones and watch the beautiful footage of these small little drones that look like hummingbirds flying in and out of these areas where you can actually see the hummingbirds in mass on the trees. So have a look at that. It's really fascinating and the, the monarchs could care less whether those little drones are around. So it's really fascinating. That really is the most incredible footage. Totally worth a watch. I have, yeah, I'll definitely look that up. I wasn't aware of that. One thing you might mention too, if if particularly if our listeners have have kids or grandkids or neighborhood kids or, who are interested, if you can participate in the, the late summer tagging work that we do, the uh, folks over at KU, Chip Taylor and his folks have a tagging effort every year for, for real cheap. You can get your kids out, collect some monarchs, tag them, and be part of this bigger scientific effort to figure 
where they're going, how fast they're getting there, and and how many we've got. So it's it's part of good citizen science, and uh, you and and uh, and young ones can participate in this and uh, have a good time and learn a lot at the same time. Yes, and Brad, what you just mentioned. So that's an international science project, but it's but it's from KU. So that's something that we as Kansans can be really proud of. Yep. Amen. Good. Well, keeping us moving right along here, we kind of jumped over pillar number four and pillar number four is a really important one and one that I find to be particularly interesting because it states that wildlife can only be killed for a legitimate purpose. And what fascinates me about this is how do we define legitimate purpose and who gets to define that? And um, I think that's something that's come up in a potential criticism of this model is um, because it was really constructed by or at least through a hunting focus, um, what's considered a legitimate purpose by a hunter might be different to someone else. So um, this one's just so interesting. And I just, how do we define that legitimate purpose? Well, I, I can start if you'd like. I mean, you look at the definition and it says four reasons, right? Food, fur, self-defense, or to protect your property, essentially protected from wildlife depredation. And uh, Laura mentioned a couple of those examples. Um, but I will tell you, Tana, you, you were in on the last commission meeting we had. This is really a, a hot topic about what's appropriate and what's not. In Kansas, our legislature has basically said, you know, coyotes aren't game animals. They aren't fur bearers. You can kill them almost anytime, any way you want. And so there's, there's very little regulation of those. Uh, and so recently, uh, we approved uh, uh, the ability for uh, folks to use night thermal imaging scopes to hunt them at night. And uh, and we this was one of the ones we talked about for I don't know at least five meetings. We over and over again we talked about it, we debated it. Very healthy process. Ultimately, said you know all our neighbors essentially are allowing this in the other states, and we said let's 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 give it a try ask hunters to register if they want to use this technique uh it was pretty expensive to get into it for those night vision scopes so we thought not a lot of people would do it so it went in effect at the at the first of this year and so we're we're um, figuring out how this is working we tried to design it so that it would be outside the the normal you know rifle deer season so there wouldn't be a temptation for people to be shooting bucks and uh, it really was through a, a lot of requests by uh, cattlemen across the state saying, I'm, I'm losing uh, calves to coyotes. But then also people who, who uh, you know, hunt coyotes for their fur recreationally. And uh, so, so kind of a mix of advocates, but we, we said we'll try it. And, uh, but after we put the regulation in place, now we're hearing from some members of the public who say, I don't think this is a good idea. So the conversation continues. You know, we've had some really interesting examples of this in the past, um, like crow hunting or rattlesnake roundups kind of comes to mind. Um, so with something like rattlesnake roundups, I need somebody, maybe Steve Bender out in Texas, to educate me. Um, you know, the little I've seen about rattlesnake roundups is really more of a human safety. We're not rounding up rattlesnakes for meat necessarily as the main goal. 
Um, it's to protect humans and potentially livestock. Am I, am I on the right thinking here? That's a good question, Tana. I think historically that is the case. I think now we have created more of a festival environment around some of that. So I don't know that it's uh, particularly about safety. Um, and when I was at Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, my good friend, uh, Dr. Dwayne Schlitter, was leading kind of our non-game science side of things. And he was really invested in making, you know, monitoring those things and making sure that the roundups were being handled properly and and at least being, you know, knowledgeable about them. But it wasn't something I delved particularly very far into. I don't know that it's necessary any longer uh, from a safety standpoint, but uh, there, there could be an argument made to it for it. Another example I might give, I, I live in a rural county south of, of Topeka, and uh, we've had com community newspapers, county newspapers for 150 years. And each week there's a column about, you know, historical uh, news notes from that same week going back clear to the 1870s. And I can tell you that throughout the winter, going way back into the 1800s, were wolf hunts, right? They have these roundups where where people would line up in big areas and walk to a central spot and and hunt coyotes and and it's still happening i mean two weekends ago down in anderson county uh they had one that's been a tradition down there for all this time they're still having it today and so the question comes up is that still appropriate you know are they as as our laws allow that should they so it's it's a very live topic I'm glad you all are still talking about it, Brad. I think that's important. I think it's important to talk about it because we, you know, we going back to what Laura talked about earlier uh, on bison, you know, we had millions of bison. Many of them were killed as a result of a couple of things. One, the, the market hunting where the, the, the hides and meat were actually used all the way to trying to control the Native American populations. But in between there were, you know, kind of almost dilettante hunters that were traveling west by train and they would stop the train when a herd was close and they would just shoot them from the train and they would leave them to, to either die or, or, you know, some were quick and obviously some weren't, but none of that meat was used. And so we, we I think from my perspective, from you, you have to look at the historical things that we've done and try to put it into context. Obviously we're not doing that anymore, but we are still taking some animals without using the furs, without using the meat, without doing the things that I think most hunters want to be involved in, which is, you know, either eating the deer meat or sharing the deer meat with neighbors or, or you know, even putting the, the antlers on the wall, but trying to use the majority of that for something to uh, either bring community together or bring your family together, if that makes sense. Yeah, and this yep. is such a, an important but difficult topic. And so I, I, I'm really glad that we're talking about it. And I hope that our listeners will feel empowered to talk about it in their own hunting groups. But I was just reading about, you know, back in the 1800s, hunting for food was looked down upon. Whereas now I feel like it's completely reversed hunting, you know, people who only hunt their meat and don't buy any grocery store meat, like that's kind of revered, at least in my hunting circles. Right. I think it's right. Yeah. Tana, talk about that from a recruitment uh, and retention perspective. 
Absolutely. I'm so glad this comes up. And Laura's right. We've seen this emergence of what we call the locavore movement. Um, and I wish I could say that I coined that term, but I did not. Um, but really, it's this idea of viewing hunting through the lens of the collection of local, sustainable, organic protein. And so we've really seen an emergence of supporters for hunting, particularly with our like millennial audiences. Um, some of these younger crowds that might have otherwise been one or two generations detached from the farm and from some of the traditional hunting mindsets um, are really finding a renewed interest and passion in feeding their families and um, having this opportunity to get outside and enjoy our natural resources and then put that food on the table that it's lean and clean and um, it's just a wonderful opportunity we have. So um, many state agencies are actually using this as a recruitment tool. So for example, um, gosh, it was what last summer, man, COVID's got my timeline all screwed up. Um, I partnered up with some of our guys over in fisheries and we took some of the fish that we typically stock in community lakes. So things that are available um, in a lot of cases, right in your own backyard. And we partnered up with the farmer's market in Wichita and we said, hey, you know, come try this locally sourced protein. Um, you know, this is something you can catch in your backyard. And we really try to use that as a tool to inspire more participation. So um, it definitely checks a box with people that's different from more of the traditional hunting mentality. Um, not to say that, that that there hasn't always been a um, an attraction to the food side of things, but it really is just a completely rejuvenated look, and um, it's really gaining in popularity. That's really cool. That's the great thing about it. It's it's you know we taught you know organic is really a term now for USDA in, in a lot of ways. It's but it is organic meat. It is the thing that people want to eat, and it is lean. And it's you know if you're a guy like me with high cholesterol you know, due to genetics, you can actually still eat some meat and that, that, that lean deer meat that we, we harvest every year. Yeah, we were, you know, especially in times of COVID when unfortunately many folks have fallen on financial hardship and, um, you know, my partner and I were fortunate enough to buy a house this year to buy a new car. And I can't tell you how much we've leaned on that freezer full of local protein, that deer that we've been able to harvest or the birds that we've been so fortunate to harvest. Um, it, it's really kept us going. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful resource to have access to and to be able to put that on our tables is something that we can also just be really proud of. Yeah, definitely. My two-year-old and I just had Canada goose for lunch today. And that felt really good. <laughs> Love it. She great. loves it. That's awesome. And, you know, even if you aren't food motivated, um, there are some really incredible programs in Kansas. I would encourage you to check out the Kansas Hunters Feeding the Hungry program. That's a really, really great program where, let's say, for example, we actually have a gal in the office that is allergic to deer fur. Mm -hmm. And so if she harvests a deer, she has to be really careful about how she cleans it. And, you know, there's some back and forth on whether or not she could necessarily consume the meat, depending on how well it was processed. But um, if you are in a situation where potentially you don't like the game or you'd like to donate it, you have an excess, that Kansas Hunters Feeding the Hungry program will actually take that off your hands and ensure that that goes to families in need and goes to people that could use that meat. So um, even if that food's not your main motivation, there are definitely ways to be involved and to help others out through the food lens. And I feel good in saying that this this podcast is not going to be uh, stopped at the Kansas border either. So all of the uh, states seem to have some kind of Hunters for the Hungry type program or they're led through a nonprofit or supported by the state agency. But, you know, Missouri, 
Nebraska, Iowa, all of these folks have some kind of Hunters for the Hungry program. So, you know, if you have more tags and you want to, and your, your freezer's full, donate, donate, donate. Absolutely. Well, we've kind of taken a little tour off of our uh, the seven pillars we agreed to start with, but I'm so glad that we got there because, um, you know, new avenues to participation, new pathways are so important. And the way our system is set up, as Brad alluded to earlier, it is a user pay um, and all benefit system. So our hunters and anglers buying licenses and participating uh, regardless of their motivation, you know, doing so legally helps fund wildlife and conservation for all and make sure that these resources are preserved. So it's really important to talk about and especially to highlight all of those different avenues that you can get involved. Absolutely. So Tana, should we move along to our number six pillar? Absolutely. So number six is that science is the proper tool for the discharge of wildlife. Laura, tell me a little bit more about that. <laughs> so this one is really rooted in some of the teachings of Aldo Leopold, which listeners are probably familiar with this guy, but he's written some great, great books. Um, but so science guides all of the decision-making with game management, um, non-game threatened and endangered species. And it's really rooted in population dynamics, um, studying habitat quality, habitat health, um, studying different species, that sort of thing. And, and really, this is a, a, a good topic for you, Brad, uh, to talk about how the department really uses science to make some of those decisions, which I think you kind of already touched upon earlier. Yeah, but that, that's exactly where we have to start. And we talk about it all the time when we have conversations, making sure oftentimes when an issue comes up uh, in the media uh, or, or there's a bill in the legislature, we, we tend to go right to how do we solve this? And, and we have to keep forcing ourselves to say, now let's go back and let's start with the good science. What, what can we base our decision on? And sometimes you have great, great science. When we set deer and turkey regulations, we have years and years worth of really good data from different areas of the state that allow us to, to adjust um, uh, harvest areas and, and bag limits based on really good scientific data. But at some point, you have to take a leap from that, and you have to, you know, to, to create regulations, and you have to convince people, whether it's the legislature or a commission, that, that it's the right direction to go. And so you have to use those, those kind of data, use good science, be disciplined enough that you build trust and confidence in our, in our other partners out there, and then, you know, you try to make policy and, and adjust that over time as the science calls you to adjust. But I'll tell you, I, I had an interesting conversation uh, a couple of years ago. Well, I guess a year ago, we went through a long process of discussing reducing our bag limit for turkeys because as you go west uh, or from east to west, as, as uh, uh, eastern uh, turkeys have, have expanded out here, been stocked and, and, and done very well, you find that um, they go through kind of a boom cycle where they peak in every one of those states and then it falls off. And we're trying to figure out what that leveling off point is on the backside of that boom. And we're, we're seeing it drop our, our, in Kansas, our harvest rates, uh, our harvest per effort is still really high compared to other states, but it's fallen off. And that's part of, of the model that we use to determine when we should maybe adjust uh, the, the, the bag limits. Well, I talked to my counterparts back east and I had one, I won't tell you the state, but, but that director said, 
If I brought up the idea of reducing the bag limit on turkeys, I would not be in this job a week. Uh, he, he just said, point blank, I, I would be thrown out. Uh, that is like a sacred thing. Everybody gets two turkeys every spring, and despite the fact that their population is continuing to decline, that's still the idea that they are allowed to get two is, is like sacred. So we, here we try to use, we, we have the benefit of having some historical um, momentum, but also uh, having people that on our commission, especially and in the public that appreciate good science as the basis for our decision-making. And uh, so we were trying to rely on that. Um, I, I might mention one other thing though, to, to kind of contradict that. Here's um, right now, people are catching crappie like crazy in our reservoirs, having great wintertime fishing. And we have some reservoirs that have a 20 crappie limit, others that have a 50. A lot of fishermen say, you shouldn't be letting those folks take 50 crappie. And we know from a fishery management perspective, that is not gonna hurt that population at all. Crappie are relatively short-lived. They grow, they're gonna die. If they get harvested, you know, so much the better. Um, but people say, no, that's that's too many fish for uh, an angler to take. So, and so that's that, if we adjust that down to 20, oftentimes it's partly science and partly, you know, uh, human dimensions, kind of sociological push because uh, folks want to be satisfied out there and we try to listen to our, our, our users, our customers, to help them be satisfied with what the regulations are. So it's kind of a complex mix, but hopefully it starts out with good science. Brad, you really tied it all together there. And something you said that stuck out to me is the way that we apply the science and communicate it to our lawmakers, to legislators. And, you know, I do want to point out, I feel like I'm in that position being fairly new with the agency, just a couple short years in, a couple wonderful years. Um, one thing we're really looking for as we're uh, meeting with new applicants and trying to bring more people into the realm of wildlife and parks is people that are not only trained sound biologists, but also good communicators. So I would encourage anyone listening today, if you are, you know, in that educational path and hoping to come work for us someday or work for another state agency, please don't underestimate the power of that human dimensions, um, the communications work, because that really does come to play in our work. It's more than just knowing what the right thing to do is, knowing how to manage wildlife, but how to communicate that to others who may not be on your same level of experience or education. So that's so important, and I'm glad you brought that up, Brad. Yeah, thank you, Tana. You know, there's a, a meme that's been going around on social media about people who get into wildlife biology because they don't like people. And then they end up <laughs> learning that wildlife management is all about managing people. Yep. 100% true. Amen. <laughs> yeah, so the, the whole human dimensions aspect, and Le Leopold touched upon that too. His biggest fear in the 1930s was that there were these people studying sociology and politics, and then there were the people studying ecology and population dynamics of animals, and when were those two going to cross? Because at that cross, that's where we actually make stuff happen. Right. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. If it were simply about maximizing harvest, you know, then, then that becomes easier. But we all recognize it's this complex set of factors that help, help you know, people be satisfied. And so we have to be more thoughtful. Uh, we can't just go by the numbers. We really have to have those conversations. 
and uh, and learn from those and factor those into our decision-making. So yeah, you're exactly right. All right. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation, but I know we're starting to run low on time. So we'll definitely be inviting you both back. But before we leave today, I do want to talk a little bit about the seventh sister, the very last pillar in our conversation today, and that is the democracy of hunting. And that's something that we really have Theodore Roosevelt to thank for the seven tenth of the North American model, because he theorized that open access to hunting would actually result in benefits to society. And, um, you know, we've seen some examples of this, but what benefits exactly to society have we been seeing by allowing this open access to hunting? Go ahead, Steve, you start. Well, I think that, I think we're on the cusp of seeing more, Tana. I, 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 maybe I'll speak to what maybe the future holds. I, I, I feel like we're all working towards um, the, the notion of the democratizing of hunting is hopefully one aspect of where we're going to help other uh, help new people get invested in not just hunting but uh, bird watching and other things. But you know the the issue for us is as we, we talked about this earlier was this notion that a lot of what was going on with hunting is still for white folks, and we need to open that space up. We need to open up all the outdoors for people of color people uh, from different countries, people who come here just to, you know, uh, with the same notion that our ancestors came with was just to get a better life. We need to open up the outdoors for everyone and hunting can be that space. We know that, uh, and Tana, maybe you can speak to this more, but my understanding is that women are the, the you know, the leading new component for getting, for, for beginning the hunt. Is that, is that correct? Well, yeah, that's actually really interesting that you cite that. So that was true up until I believe about 2016. Women were the fastest growing group in outdoor recreation. And then we did see a little bit of a dip um, here more recently. But then with COVID spikes again, um, one of the groups that's been getting out in the largest numbers, you know, in droves have been women. And, um, you know, it's really interesting to talk about women involvement um, because historically women have been involved all along. And it's really a matter of um, whether or not they were encouraged or whether or not that participation was recorded. So we're really trying to encourage more female participation um, and just get more women out there. I know that you and Laura are leading that charge as well. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Hey, amen. Uh, I agree with you, Steve. Tana, we were at a meeting last winter, uh, and I was thinking that they were talking about women, moms being the most likely individual to introduce kids to fishing. Do you remember that? Oh, man, I don't know if I do, but I would I could certainly see that, um, especially yeah. as some of our family models are starting to change as well with more modern family structure. I could definitely see where that would be. That would be the case. Exactly right. That's the data they were citing. That, that the, and so if we're thinking we're focused on, on just men as far as taking out kids, we were way off because their data showed if, if a, a new child was introduced to fishing, it most likely was by a female in their life and not a male. So that's a powerful thing. It just underlines what you all have been saying, the need for us to, to expand the picture of, uh, of, of who can, can go out and enjoy the outdoors. To me, one of the really critical components of this, there's a term that's being kicked around. You all have heard about it relevancy. And when I first heard this, uh, as it applies to the outdoors, um, 
the 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 push was kind of as as wildlife agencies we have to remain relevant we have to do all these things to remain relevant but to me i see this as having two faces that's certainly one of them it's part of our job to to help people understand the value that the resources that we manage have but the other part is this this uh, connectivity this and steve mentioned that earlier ownership um uh, being able to relate to to the outdoor environment as i hear you all talk this has been a, a, a foundational part of who you are is your understanding and relationship to the environment but we have folks in our society that don't have that same connection so it is imperative that we figure out a way to introduce them to the environment to, to help them get comfortable and, and learn to enjoy. The last thing I'll mention was one of the exciting things about COVID was I heard a statistic in midsummer last year. They said that that there was an 80% increase in first-time users of the uh, of the environment uh, last year. People that were fishing, hiking, hunting, whatever for the first time ever. So it was a, a huge benefit for us, and it maybe it took COVID to get people to realize just what a special thing that the environment is and, and how, how much they enjoy being engaged with it. So, so we've got to do better at that. And uh, I appreciate all your voices as they uh, are, are encouraging that. You know, Brad, what's going to be a really interesting byproduct of that is seeing the effect that it has on the outdoor recreation economy and industry. And that's a huge industry as it is. Um, I mean, 80 or $887 billion in commute, consumer spend is generated annually from outdoor recreation type purchases in that economy. And I think we're going to see some really interesting advancements in that economy as a result of um, all these people getting involved for the first time and meeting the needs of all those individuals and all the diversity that might exist in those new recruits. So that's a really exciting thing to see. And there's Amen. There's some great groups in this space that are trying to advance people of color getting outdoors, outdoor Afro being one of those. Uh, Room Map is a fantastic advocate for getting people outdoors. The, the thing we need to do, and I think, I, I know that a lot of the uh, directors like Brad are very well aware of it, is we need to create that safe space for people of color to get outdoors. We need to make sure that we are on the front lines of that. The, you know, I was talking to someone not too long ago and they, they indicated their, their grandmother had told them that there's a reason you have, you know, two ears and one mouth, and that's because you should listen twice as much as you talk. And I think that's incumbent upon the, the state agencies, the National Wildlife Federations, all of the groups that are working in this space to listen more and, and work hard to take what we learn and, and put, uh, create actions that allow for that safe, those, those safe spaces to take place. I'm part of a, a board uh, and staff led organization, uh, group within National Wildlife Federation called Creating uh, Safe Spaces. And that's what we're really focused on is telling the stories of people of color who have not felt safe getting outdoors and starting to create opportunities uh, for them to do that and start to create change so they can do that. Hey, Steve, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And um, we're working with the Western states, Western 20 states and five Canadian provinces uh, on diversity and inclusion initiatives in state agencies. Some are pretty far along. Texas is one of them who's mm -hmm. moving farthest and fastest, but a lot of us are, are just trying to catch up. And our first step is trying to, to be more inviting to people of color, people with different backgrounds, 
uh, to bring diversity to our staff. That's a, a key first step in us reaching out and being more inclusive as we um, to, you know, try to offer opportunities for, for people in our state and looking more like the people in our state as far as our makeup. Um, one of the things that, that um, a friend on that committee said is if, and, and we were talking about advertising, how we portray uh, the hunting, fishing, hiking, birding community in our publications. And he said, if, if I don't see me, it can't be me. Right. And, and that was, that was eye opening to me because I realized just how long we have put the same types of people on the covers of our magazines and pictures in our publications. We have to be more inclusive of, uh, in the way we portray that community in order to people feel like they can fit into it. I think it's a really good point. And I also want to say that we haven't done a great job of recruiting, uh, people of color into the biological ranks, you know, our, we need more Latinx people that are going to university to become wildlife biologists. We need more people of color going to universities to become wildlife biologists so that people can see themselves out in the outdoors. They, you know, they can see a person of color. So I'm really um, hopeful that we can do more of that moving forward. And I know you've got some great staff, uh, Brad, that are, are helping to lead that charge and kind of uh, proselytizing on that front. So I'm excited about what we can do there too. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I don't want to speak for you all, but I'm certainly grateful for the guidance that this model has provided, but I'm glad we're recognizing some areas um, for potential expansion um, or potential reinterpretation. I think that's really important with a model like this to recognize the structure that it's provided and how far it's taken us, while also recognizing some of those criticisms that we discussed today. So I certainly appreciate everybody jumping on and being so open and thoughtful about those because, um, you know, we really do. We need to look back and reflect and make sure that if this is the right model that's going to carry us forward, how can we adjust it to ensure that we really do represent the needs and desires of all the people that we're tasked with managing these resources for. So I certainly appreciate all the open conversation today. Thank you, Tana. Thank you. Yeah, very well said, Tana. Brad and Steve, do you have any other comments that you want to leave us with before we wrap up? Um, from from my perspective, um, it is an exciting time. We need more diverse voices around the table as we're making decisions and understand better uh, how, how hunting and fishing and non-hunting and fishing public view what we're doing and how we can become more relevant and, and uh, uh, inviting to them. So that's the conversation we're in. We look forward to it. I appreciate the way this conversation today has, has helped us advance that. Steve? Thanks, Brad. And I really appreciate being part of the conversation. And I'm so excited to be uh, on the inaugural episode of this, what's going to be a great podcast. Uh, in spite of me being on it, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> the, 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 I want to say that, you know, coming back to your final point, Tana, which is, is the North American model open to the future? And there's no restrictions based on the seven sisters, based on the pillars, based on where we've been, based on where we're going. The, the North American model and the pillars don't come short on that. It's a matter of how people use them and work within them. So the pillars are, like you said about the, the last pillar about democratizing hunting, democratizing wildlife and, and, and getting people engaged. It's all there. It's ready for us to move forward. And it's, and it's malleable. It can be 
changed as we see fit. And, and so it's, it's ready to be changed in whatever way we need to. It doesn't have to be abandoned. Uh, I think it's open for, for reevaluation, just like you said. So thank you all again for letting me be a part of this. Thank you, Steve. And what an inspiring action item to move forward with. Well, Laura, anything else on your end? No, it's been a real pleasure talking to you all. I've learned a lot and I'm just really excited to, to move forward with this. And I hope all of our listeners will take information they've heard today and have those important discussions that need to happen with your friends and family about wildlife management. Absolutely. Well, thank you to Brad and Steve. We certainly appreciate you joining the conversation on our first episode. This has been so fun. You'll definitely be hearing more from these two. I imagine, obviously, they're experts in their field, and we're so fortunate to have them. Uh, You'll be hearing more from Laura and I, too, as a couple of your podcast hosts, and we'll actually be bringing some others in as well. So be sure to keep up with us. Thanks so much for listening today and tuning in. We actually share new podcasts every week, so be sure to like and subscribe this one, and of course, leave us reviews when those are available. Be sure to stay in touch with us also by following the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism Facebook page, as well as the Kansas Wildlife Federation on Facebook. Before we go, I just wanted to mention that the resources we've talked about today will be linked in the episode description. So those organizations like Hunters Feeding the Hungry, more information about the North American model, and other helpful resources will be linked in our description. So do be sure to check those out. Google some of those images that Laura was talking about earlier, and uh, you'll be on the right track. Okay, all. Well, thank you so much, and tune in next week for more about the people, science, and stories that make Kansas more than flyover country. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, the Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting KansasWildlifeFederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date with all things KDWPT by following the department on Facebook at KDWPT and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Parks Tourism. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.